Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm Magic Brian, your host for this growing collection of interviews. In this episode, Eric Amber travels all the way from Calgary, Canada, down to the middle of the United States, to the Oak Bar Ranch in southern Arizona, to talk to Jeff Cobb, a.k.a. Tom Selectomy. Jeff shares stories about Ren Fairs, going to Clown College, having a mainstream job, surviving cancer, achieving death as a sword swallower, and now being mostly a retired performer, managing a massive ranch in Arizona. He's had a lifetime of adventures and shares a lot of them with Eric. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Mr. Jeff Cobb, thank you for having me. It's turning into the Oak Bar Ranch and home for Wayward Street Performers. It, it is. <laughs> this is the part of the interview where I say that we are in Arizona on the, what is it, mid-May? What are we? May something. May 11th. May 11th. 5'11", because those are tackle boots I wear. Oh. Tackle boots, sir. Made by the 5'11 company. Right. May 11, 2016, on the Oak Bar Ranch in southern Arizona. So we're how, how we're like eight miles from... As the crow flies, we're six miles. Six miles to the Mexican border. Yeah. From the back of the property, we're five. Oh, yeah. We're sitting here on 650 acres of Arizona desert. Rolling hills, though. It's pretty. It is fucking gorgeous is what it is. Um, how, is this how, uh, retired street performers, like, this is how re- street performers retire? If they're really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> There's no planning involved. Yeah, you, you know, it just kind of happens, I guess, maybe. You've had a charmed life. Well, it didn't start out that way, but yeah. No, I've heard stories. Well, you've, you've told me stories. About how you like, there's some heartache, but... Uh, I think there's always more of a s- storyteller than a sword swallower. Yeah, right. You're like me. You're like, I'll go to the festival and then hang out and tell jokes with the performers. That's the best part. Yeah, yeah. That's the part I always like the most. Right. It's like when, our, <laughs> when, when Checkerboard and I, when David Aiken and I did our, our, our crazy little, you know get together duo show and the first after the first show we passed the hat and you know i'm not big on rehearsal or organizing or anything so the first show was pretty freaking dicey and we got done but i had, I had fun doing it it was just fun to me and he was looking at the hat and i said it was fun right and he looked at the hat and he was like uh. <laughs> <laughs> i never cared about that it was just fun doing shows and you know the festivals what a good time they are Although Edmonton is where I learned that free beer is overrated, because you go there, and then you get free beer after 10 o'clock at night, but your last show's not till 9.30, and you get done doing a show at 9.30, and the sun's still up, and you're like, God, oh, I just finished working, and you got that energy, you're like, I'm ready to go. And so you go and you drink free beer, and 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 free beer, and, free beer. and next thing you know, the sun's coming up, and you're... Oh, yeah. And after 11 days of that, you're like, I don't ever want to drink a beer again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but clearly, you are drinking a beer. Oh, well, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Only Mexican beer on this range. You didn't grow up here in Arizona, though, did you? Nope. I grew up, uh, well, I grew up everywhere. I was born outside of Illinois, outside of Illinois, outside of Chicago. And then my folks were both uh, originally from D.C. That's where they both were born and raised. So we moved back to that area, and then the family went to hell. 
and somehow I ended up going to Detroit. That's where my formative years happened, were in Detroit. So you moved around a lot as a kid. You were like me. Were you, I was a carny kid. Well, what I, did I you turned do? myself into a carny kid. You turned oh, yeah. <laughs> by going to clown college and running away with the circus. Oh, you did that. You literally did that. I did that. And actually, we just had dinner here at the ranch. The owners had people here. And 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 so, you know, it's a big, fancy ranch. Because people are listening to this, they don't know the whole backstory of the ranch. But it's a big, fancy ranch. And the owners were here, and they had people here, and they invited us to dinner. And at some point in dinner, I said, well, back when I was on the circus, and the lady next to me was just like, whoa, wait. Did you really just say with the circus? Like, you ran away with the circus? and. I mean, like yourself, if you grew up all carny and stuff, and, and you know, and, and, and then run away with the circus, I ran away with the circus, it was on, at 18 is when I got on the circus, and it just, you know, for us, it's like, okay, well, that's a viable life choice, but for other people, like, <laughs> you need to move away from me. <laughs> yeah, oh no, <laughs> believe me, I've seen it in people's faces, you say, okay, I'll, I'll just drop this, I was in the carnival, kid, you know, and they're like, oh... Yeah, we don't want to annoy you anymore. Right, done. Done. I usually think it's entertaining, but... Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. We should. I didn't clear that up. We are... You are... You got this sweet job of managing the most beautiful ranch. It's a pretty amazing place. On the edge of the... On the edge of America. It's 640 acres. It, uh, the house is a mansion. It's not really a ranch. It's a mansion. Built in 1936 by some rich furniture importer in New York City, and it's now it's owned by a big oil family, and now I get to take care of the whole thing. It was pretty run down, though. You, you've been building, you've been fixing it. It was. You know, it was just, it was, for them, it's out of sight, out of mind. I mean, if you live in a house and you see that your faucet's dripping, you go, well, I'll get to that next weekend after I do whatever. Or if you're street performer, you go, I'll get to that next week, because on the weekend, I'll be doing shows. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. but it's easy to see something in your house and you go, well, I'll take care of it next week. And they go, oh, damn, I didn't do that. I'll do it next week. But these guys, they only spent three weeks a year here split up. So it's easy to see, oh, that chimney, the stucco is coming off of it. We should do something about that. And it just turns in, for us, it would turn into weeks. For them, it turned into years. And that's the state that I found it in and came into it in. But this was built during an era, like a different American era. And now, like, almost a hundred years later, we're just, we're living in the shadows. It's almost like, it's almost like being in, born in, like, ru ruined Rome. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way about America, and, and Trump is going to be the last Caesar. <laughs> I hope. No, because he's, no, he's going to get stabbed by Brutus in the Senate. No. <laughs> I tell you what, there's a bridge that leads into this place. And I got all my guns and everything ready. When the, when the end comes, I'm blowing the bridge. So, Eric, you get here as fast as you can, and I'll, I'll let you in. I got to say, when I, when I was driving down the highway in the middle of the night, and I was like, okay, I don't know where this place is. And I finally got a hold of you, <clears throat> and you met me at the road with the uh, four-wheeler. Four and uh, you led me into the, you know, onto the compound, and it was so great. It, and, uh, but you're also like, like, I think you have it on and you know, you've got, you got your, you got your got pistol. pistol. It can't be down here without a gun on it. And I was like, okay, oh yeah, this is, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is America. <laughs> Do you wear the gun because you like guns or because like we're literally on the border and it's oh, dangerous? Don't get, don't get me wrong. I do like guns. But just, uh, the week before you got here, 
three times that week we had Border Patrol show up on this property. And they didn't show up because I called them. They showed up because their sensors had gone off and they thought something was happening out here. People are coming across. We have traffic across here. And the thing about this area of Arizona, I mean, we all like to think, and, and I even, the first time that I was, that I encountered, when I first moved down to this part of Arizona, I'd lived in Arizona before up in Flagstaff, which is a whole different world. But the first time I moved down here on the border, I saw these four guys standing along the road and they were hitchhiking. And I look at the rugged mountains that are behind them and I'm like, that's really sad. You're, you've made it through all that and you're giving up and you're hitchhiking. It's really sad. But then I came to learn through talking to Border Patrol agents and other people that there's almost no immigration in this area. It's all smuggling. And what happens is these guys come across with their drug bales and stuff. And whether drugs should be legal or not is another conversation. They should be, but it's another conversation. But the thing is, these guys all work for the cartels. They bring the drugs across. They drop them off so that a truck can pick them up. And then they just want Border Patrol to pick them up and take them home because it's catch and release within 100 miles. Right. So they're out there thumbing a ride, and the Border Patrol is like, well, I'm not picking you up. I, that's what I've learned. Border Patrol like, knows someone by name, and they're like, I'm not picking you up. We don't care. Walk home. you know. And, but it's all smuggling in this area. Right. And so it is dangerous. I mean, there are things that happen. And, and I have no dreams. I have no... I would never, ever... And I took a, a big, intensive firearms class up by Phoenix. I would never, ever want to have to take a weapon out and do... No, that, I don't want that. I don't ever want to... I can't imagine that, that everything goes with that. But having a pistol on your hip is going to make people walk a little bit farther away from you. And also, let's, just think let's twice. leave that out of the, the picture. I mean, I had to shoot two rattlesnakes in one day last year. And there's... I mean, it's just... We had a... Uh, here on the ranch, we had a, 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 a mountain lion take a, a calf. Oh, just a f- couple months back. So there are other reasons. It's not just all I'm some macho American. And I'm ready to, you know, God damn it, America, you're, fuck yeah. You're living, you're living the American dream out here, out in the no, desert. I think it's an ranch. old, it's an old dream, but <laughs> it's amazing. It's totally amazing. And you've come a long way to be here. Yeah. So where, did you, what did your parents do? My father was a Marine in World War Two. He was on Iwo Jima. And so he came back from the war just not, you know, what you're supposed to come back from. I mean, my mom was a young girl from a, a, an affluent Washington neighbor, Washington family. And my father was from this military family. And he tried, I have a, a little box of all of his information. He tried so hard after Pearl Harbor happened when he was 14, I think. And he was out playing baseball in Washington, D.C. And he remembered it and he told me that story. And he said, and for the rest of his, he wanted to be in the service. And his father was a major uh, in the army. He was an aide to General Pershing, who led the Allied Expeditionary Force in World War One. And so he contacted all these different people. Uh, Bates Warren, who was an admiral in the Navy, and all these people that the friends were family, the family were friends with. He wanted to be an aviator, be it in the in the in the in the, in the Army Air Corps or the Marine Air Corps or the Navy. But he just didn't have the grades. He wasn't. I mean, to be a pilot, you have to have grades. You have to be smart, even in a time of war. You know, Joe Blow is not going to be a, a Yeah, pilot. yeah. And so he tried to do all that, and he didn't. So he finally, he enlisted the Marine Corps, and he ended up on Iwo Jima. And he came back from that war. Well, he fucking a survived. Man. He survived Iwo Jima. He did. But he that would have been like, that would have been, you know, of itself. Yeah. But, I mean, you hear all these stories about people who came back from the war, and they're the greatest generation and stuff like that. And they were. They went and gave everything for... 
for the for say they saved the world. Yeah, and uh, but he didn't come back like that, and it, it played out through the history of the family and stuff. And I was the last kid, and and I ended up having a pretty broken childhood, which gave me this incredible need to be needed by people and wanted by people. And I think that's what led me to this whole thing of standing on a street corner going, hey, fucking pay attention to me. <laughs> what was your first street show? How did you get into that? Well, I got into it... You mentioned that you went to clown school. Though, right? I did. But that was a, that, was a deliberate act. Yeah, but before that, mainly I, went, mainly I did Renaissance festivals through most of my career. We don't, we don't have those in Canada. What are, no, what's the you're Renaissance? lucky not to have those. <laughs> <laughs> they started out. I mean, they started out great. They started out in in uh, California. A lady named Phyllis Patterson started the first one in 1963, um, and she did it for her high, her high school history class. And that's where they started. And they got started, and they were like a medieval recre- recreation thing. And then somehow it got bigger and bigger, and the public was there. And then all these guys from Minnesota, George Cullum being the main one, found it. And he was like, this is a brilliant idea. This is money here. So he took the idea. Oh, so it, <laughs> he took like, the idea back to Minnesota. Right. And Minnesota happened. And then he went down and started one in Texas. And I might be wrong on the exact, you know, hopscotch. Sure, 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 sure. But it turns out that today most of the Renaissance festivals are owned by guys from Minnesota. Just these weird guys from Minnesota who realized it could be a thing. And the funny thing is it's not a... Like nobody owns the name. You could start a Renaissance Festival in in Okotoks. You know, wherever you right. want to do it, you could start a Renaissance Festival. Nobody owns that name. Wherever there isn't one already. Yeah. But the odd thing is they seem to only succeed in cities that have NFL teams. Oh. Yeah. If, there's not, if the city's not that big, that seems to be what makes the big ones not happen. It's like street festivals, then. Like it is, big but towns, it's, it's just like can't handle a good street fair. Yeah, yeah. Because like a small town, when the street performers are in town, like the heroes come to town. Right, it's a big deal. Yeah, which is funny. It makes me think I mean, we're hopping ahead here. But so I ended up going to clown college, and I was a circus clown. And I was I wasn't on Ringling, but I was on the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers show, which was a huge. It was one of the last American Ten shows before circus, so they killed American Circus. Do you hear that? Cirque du Soleil killed American Circus. You heard it here first. All that, oh. all that funding from your you know, liberal government. Yeah. Fuck anyway. Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but uh, so it was one of the last big American... It was a tent show. Three rings and elephants and all that. Oh, elephants. That's bad now, too. But anyway, uh, I get into my conservative American self, and that's not what we're here for. Well, but, elephants uh, <laughs> now self-identify as donkeys. Oh, so they're Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, uh, but yeah, we did a, just talking about, you know, the, the heroes come to town. Yeah. There was a little town that we played in somewhere in, in New England, and when the circus came, even though it was late at night, because we, we did, we were, we, were, we were a truck show, did our jumps, you do shows all day long, you tear down, you drive to the next town. You were, Sometimes we you were a jump day. show? A truck show. A truck show. As opposed to Ringling, which is a train show. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so you tear, we, we would do shows, sometimes you set up, you, you, the circus is happening, you tear down, you jump to the next town, you set up, you do shows, th- three shows a day, you tear down, well, two shows during the, during the week. Sure. The week. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so then you tear down, and you go to the next place. The most we ever stayed in any place was five days. That was out on Long Island. But there was some place in, in New England where we had done this, we tear down the show, drive to the next town, and even though it's 
midnight, one, two o'clock. The whole town is still... This is part of the magic of being on a circus in the 80s. It was still at the end of it, but it was was still happening. We come into the town, and the whole town, there's a parade. And there's free pizza, and there's beer, and it's just... It was the heroes coming to town. Just yeah. Like said. It was neat. And you, that is like when a, when, a, when a street festival happens in a small town. Everybody's so excited and, and stuff. But then you go to Edmonton, and the people who come to it are really excited and stuff. And the people right around it are really excited and stuff. But overall... It's another event in a big city. Yeah, there's too it's much going on. There's a different feel city. to it. Yeah. No, not, nothing taken away from the Edmonton Festival, which is a fantastic festival. No, no, no. But just that feeling of, oh my God, here you are, you're all here. Oh, you're one of the buskers. You're... Fringe theater in Canada is a big deal. And every town has one, but Toronto, which has a Fringe theater festival, it just dies because it's drowned out by all the other so shit. So much. Yeah. There's so much. Yeah. There's so much going on, so it's... I can see the rent fair. So that's like, uh, what was the name of the guy who founded uh, the McDonald's chain? Ray Kroc. Ray Kroc. So like, see, you know why I know that? No, why? Because I grew up in, well, I didn't grow Illinois. Up. I was born in Highland Park, Illinois, which is right by uh, where he, Deerfield, where he started all that and stuff, Arlington Heights and, and stuff. So some some it's, Ray it's Kroc, in my brain. right? Some Ray Kroc came along and was like rent fairs, right? And as opposed to a lot of you know liberal street performers, I still eat Big Macs. <laughs> well, like I said to you earlier today, I self-identify as an American. Well, and today we can self-identify as anything. <laughs> I self-identify as Al Miller, but I still don't make the hats. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So you, um, I think you told me a little bit about. Um, growing up with your with your your folks got back together and then but then they passed away when you were still young. They did. So they, I mean, things were ugly early on. They divorced. My mom was an alcoholic. I went through foster care, but somehow my mom got this idea in her head that she needed to put her family together and raise this last kid. She tracked my dad down. That's how I got to Detroit. Tracked my dad down, who was living in Detroit with some woman. Got him to kick her out. They got back together, and they were just, like, disgusting junior high school in love. And they got remarried to each other. It was just, it was gross. I mean, they always held hands. It was, <laughs> it was just gross. Really... My parents loved each other. <laughs> it was gross. It's pretty vile. And, you know, looking back, and then they, well, I feel bad about those times because I was so angry about what had happened to me early on. Sure. That I never, and my wife has a wonderful relationship with her, her mother. And I look at that, and I go, Oh, I wish I could have been friends with my parents because now I understand, you know, because you go through life and you you see life differently than you saw it when you were 18, 19, or 13, or 14, as the case may be. The world is a different place and everything mellows and you understand that everybody's a mess. But I was so angry with my parents. I was never nice to them. I was trouble every minute of the day. I mean, I was a bad kid. I got arrested for things and... Every drug known to man I liked, and I just did, I was just not a good kid. And I was angry at them, and that's why. And I look back at them and I'm like, I wish I'd been so angry. Because as it worked out, I got back with them, and that's when I was angry. And then my mom died four years later. After I got back with them, she died of cancer. And then two years later, my dad died of cancer. And so I never, I never grew into that relationship that some people get to grow with their parents. Some people don't, but mm-hmm. some do. And I, I look at a lot of, as at my age, at 48, I have a lot of friends who still have their parents, and now they're starting to lose them. And I'm like, 
in a way, I'm glad I lost them early, even though I wish our relationship had been better. Because I didn't lose a friend, I just lost a parent. But if it goes on, they really become a friend, they become part of your life, they become someone you know, the relationship changes, and it just seems to me like it's a sweeter thing than, it, than just having a parent when you're 18. You're like, oh, that's my dad, eh, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not but so much friends. I'm not so much younger than you, but, but my parents are still alive. Uh, I, I think I, I got some anger issues of my own that I'm still working through. But, you know, you're speaking to that thing where uh, life life changes as you get older. You do. It just, the way you see the world. But you have kids. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I do. So what, so what, instead of going to college, you went to clown school? I went to Clown College. I actually was... Um, how old sir? How old were you when your parents passed? I was 16 when my mom passed and 18 when my dad passed. And I got back with them when I was uh, 12. So it was four years after I'd gotten back with them so when my mom passed and my dad passed. So when your dad passed, you didn't, you didn't like... You were now an adult. Well, you know, legally, but technically, I don't think I became an adult until about... Uh, Jessica and I have been married since we've been married eleven years. Well, as, as long as she doesn't listen to this, it, I'd say I've been an adult for ten years. <laughs> but if she's listening, <laughs> certainly I was an adult for twelve years. <laughs> okay, so you didn't become an adult until you got into your newest relationship. For sure, yeah, absolutely. And I've always thought that that's the. Like, I look at performers that I think are not skilled. But, you know, there are people you meet. And I don't mean to bring up his name specifically again. And I don't know his story. Because we're, I know him. We're friends on some level and stuff. But not close. But you look at some performers like Al Miller. And you meet him instantly. And you're like, wow, you're, you're a rock star. There's something in you. There's this charisma in you that makes you really just... There's something about you. And I don't know his story on Avis or anything, but I, the the performers, the other performers that I do know like that kind of are, there's some flaw in us that makes you need that. There's something about, you don't just have the skill set, but there's something about you that needs you make, makes you need to make friends with people. Right. Or, or some, there's something you need in some way. It really sets the good performers apart from the guys who are just tradesmen who make everything work. A, B, C, D, and it works. But there's something you feel inside of people that's different like that. And I, that, I don't know if that's the case with Al at all. I don't know what his story is. But I, there is a performer that I know who said he didn't have flaws. And I, I kept telling him he had flaws. And he probably really had flaws. <laughs> that things went bad. <laughs> I'm not saying... Keep that in there because <laughs> he'll be the only one who knows who it is. <laughs> I'm not saying that you got any flaws, but but I do. I think there's something, and I think that's part of what happened with me with being done performing, is that finally I got to this point where the flaw was taken care of, and I still the few things I do I still enjoy performing, but I have absolutely no drive to do it. It's like if you would really like to hire me to go and do a show. That's fine, but I just assume the, that bug got cured. Yeah, I think I don't know. You know, I'm no psychologist. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. I want to know about clown college. 
Oh, that's is, nice. Is like, is that like a real thing? Well, you know, my thing is I treated that just... college like real college, and I just drank beer the whole time I was there. <laughs> but no, I went to Ringling Clown College in '86. In '86, it was in Venice, Florida. And my story of getting there is a little bit. So Ringling had their uh, like a clown school. They realized in the late '60s that um, clowning was kind of dying. To nip it in the bud, they uh, they started their own clown college. Um, and they got all their old clowns living around, Lou Jacobs, Frosty Little, all these old guys, all the Greeling, all these old guys to come and, and teach this thing. And uh, they did, you you would go and do an audition. When the circus came to you, when Ringling came to your town, you would do an audition. And then you would fill out what if you, even if you look it up on Google today, it talks about it being like a psychological evaluation, this application that you would fill out. All right, do you have what it takes to be a clown? And why do you really want to be a clown? What, and do you have what it takes to live in a small place with... It's like... like I mean, this ties into other Marines. Of, Your dad was a Marine, and you became a clown Marine. Exactly. Clown Marine. <laughs> but, they, but that's the thing. And, and there were guys I was in the circus with. And I was in the circus in 87. So there were guys who, had, who were the roustabouts who'd been in Vietnam. And I, 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 I have incredible respect for people in the military. I wish, and we'll get to this, I wish I'd gone in the military instead of being a clown because I would have become an adult much earlier. I could have used, I never had responsibility thrust to me. I never had to be responsible for my actions. And, and now, as an adult looking back, I go, wow, if I'd had those responsibilities, I would have been a different person earlier on. But there were guys on the circus, on this this. This tent show of insignias, like this, is worse than Vietnam ever was. And I'm not saying that; these are guys who are actually there. So you're back saying to, that. And so of course, they were being dirty tough. old clowns saying this was worse than Vietnam. Not clowns, roustabouts. Oh, but right. they were, but they were, and they were being tongue in cheek. But they were just like, but that shows the fact that you're all these people smashed in this little thing, doing this little thing, and it's just this little tight world that you have to fit into. And that's what Ringling's... So it was like... That's, uh, what, that's what their application was about, was finding out, like, why do you want to be in this little thing? So it was like boot will, camp. Will you really fit in this little thing? Well, that's what they called clown college. They called it boot camp for the circus. It was eight weeks. Big shoe camp. <laughs> yeah, big shoe camp. <laughs> but it, it just... And you did everything. You learned... Um, we had improv classes by a guy who had worked with Robin Williams. Uh, they did all these weird character development things where you play with Play-Doh and figure out who your character is. It was a little bit gay. Oh, I can't say that. It was a little bit weird. Uh, well, <laughs> uncomfortable. I'm in America. It's been uncomfortable. Um, a bit cockeyed. <laughs> but uh, so it was really it was a strange thing. And then of course you have your juggling classes and da 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 da. da. And I already was a, a pretty accomplished juggler by then. But you do rope walking, you do stilt walking, you do like every skill there is. Uh, the worst one for me because I have a big I'm, I like when I take a shower. I make sure there's a towel close by so that whenever my face gets wet, I can dry it off. So the worst thing for me in clown college was probably water spitting day. When we all sat around for a class and for an hour, we learned how to spit water into each other's faces. So you get the stream right and you get the... So that it can be seen because you're ringling. You're in these big... That's what they're breeding. They're breeding ringling clowns. They're not doing European clowns. They're not after people like Datto or Fraser Hooper. They're after this broad spectrum cartoon a living cartoon right so we did all things mcdonald's like of clowns no 
well, I might pull out this pistol and shoot him. <laughs> the, the comparison to Ronald McDonald. But I see where you're going. No, sorry, so, I didn't mean Ron, I'm not saying hey, Ronald McDonald anymore. I like 640 <laughs> acres to bury you on, bitch. Watch it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? You wouldn't be the first one who wanted to kill me. <laughs> but no, so it's just, the, I mean, they're after everything, but the clown, the, the water spinning thing, oh my God, that was a terrible day for me. Because I hate, I, I just hate that feeling of water kind of dripping down your face a little bit. Did you, did you almost drown as a kid or something like that? No, I just got quirks, you know? <laughs> I, I ended up being a sword swallower. What are the odds of quirky sword swallowers? Yeah. I think they're normal people. Oh, that's why you're in the desert. Cause I'm you also afraid of birds. You don't like I'm water. birds. You're surrounded by birds out I'm here. I'm terrified of birds. Fuck. I got attacked by a goose when I was a kid. Birds, they fly. They, any angle they can get you, they're like sharks in the air. That's <laughs> yeah. a big problem. <laughs> air sharks. Jeff Cobb, sword swallower. Afraid of air sharks. There you go. Oh wow, that's fascinating though. Like so, but they. So what you're saying is that there was a time before the internet and before the modern world and Facebook and all that shit, where like circus was still important. It was neat and, because we were we were a mud show. We played the circus pulls in. They said, I mean, there were times. There was one time in Danville, Virginia, where we couldn't put up the top of the big top. We were a big top, a three ring big top. We couldn't put it at the top because the, the, the field we were going to be on was too muddy. So they couldn't roll the spool trucks on them, which are these big spools that roll up the top canvas. So they put up all the, all the, the poles, all the rigging, put up the sidewalls, put up all the seats, and we played under open air. And it was really neat and magical. That there was a circus without the... There was no roof on the tent. Yeah. But it was still on a big top. It was neat. No? Yeah. Those are crazy days. It was the real deal. And there was a time we were someplace up in, somewhere up in, way up in New England. No, I guess we wouldn't have been in New England. We were somewhere in NASCAR country. And we were, we wanted pizza. And we don't have cars. Only the boss clown can have a car. <laughs> only the, the, the boss. Yeah, because they can only park so many things on lots. So the boss clown can have a car. We can have a car. Which is also why we went to so many gay bars. But uh, <laughs> that's another story. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> Now, when you're 19, the, the the boss clown's going to the bar, and he's and it's a gay bar, and you you know, and you're doing tumbling all day. You drink for free, <laughs> well, maybe not free, but anyway. So, <laughs> someplace in car racing country. So I don't know, Virginia. We didn't North pay with cash, if that's what you mean. <laughs> Something like that. But we're in this wherever, and we're, we want to go get pizza because we're on the lot, which is wherever, and. Uh, so we go out to like hitchhike to go get pizza, and we end up catch a ride on this this thing that has some you know not a real stock car, not like Dale Earnhardt or something like that, but some local racing stock car. They're like, all right, get on! So we just all pile on the trailer. We're hanging on and stuff, and they drive us to the nearest pizza place. And we go like, all right, well we want pizza and we'll climb from the circus. And as soon as you say climb from the circus. And they know the circus around. It's like you were talking about the heroes that come to town. Yeah. It's like, okay, anything. So we got our pizza delivered with us. We paid for the pizza. They made the pizza. And they drove us back to the lot. Nice. Which was good fun. When was your first street show? My first street show was actually before Clown College. I was, I, oh, because you I said you were first, already a juggler by that. Well, I saw my first Renaissance. I went to my first Renaissance Festival in Minnesota in 1983. In 1984, I came back and got involved with the festival there. In 1985, there was a Detroit 
has gone through so many. It's funny that I performed at Renaissance Festival, but Troy's gone through so many renaissances. That's what they always call it. They had the Renaissance Center and then these other things. And there was an old uh, warehouse district, Trapper's Alley. And they turned it into like a like an upscale, weird boutique shopping thing. And it kind of happened because the... I don't know. Like uh, When I was finishing up my time in Detroit, there was still... And this, I don't, it's going to be racist because I say white and black, but it's not racist at all. There was still... White people were still going down in Detroit to do things. Hudson's, Hudson's, uh, the big store, the big department store was still there. Hudson's Bay? No, it was just Hudson's on its own. It's part of Hudson's, uh, something else from out of Minnesota. It ended up becoming, but that was its own thing. And that was still there, and there was all this going on. And the white flight was still happening, I guess, because of the the riots and the closing down of the thing before the term, before all the white folk moved to the the suburbs and and the town just became, you know, just these unfortunate, unemployed, you know, the, the, the working folks that had been there, all the executives from GM and all those companies left and stopped going in. They got afraid to go south of Eight Mile Road. So when I was still there, it was still kind of happening. So anyway, they built this area called Trapper City. Uh, it was a big old warehouse district. And it was all kinds of neat little... When we say boutique today, it means that some hipster has it and something different. But it was like that. They were all kind of corporate things and stuff. But it was, it was like this upscale place downtown Detroit. And they decided they want to have a street for me. And somehow I saw something about it. So I went down and that was the first place I ever did street shows. And I did them there for about three or four months. Doing juggling. And, and of course, you know, being Renaissance will be my first introduction to it. I was like dressed in tights and a little... Weird shawl over me and a belt and stuff and doing these things. In downtown Detroit. Yeah. Oh, shit. But that was the first, yeah. That was a little goofy. And how did people like you? I went over well because there wasn't much going on, you know. Right. It's easy to be a big fish in a non-existent pond. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I was a guppy, pretty much. Right. Did you like Detroit? Growing up in Detroit? You love Detroit. If you're from Detroit, you love it. I mean, there's no part of Detroit. I, I did the Windsor Festival one year, and I took um, other, pe- other performers who were in Windsor. I took them across and showed them parts of Detroit that no one would ever go to. And I think when you grow up someplace, you just have a, a comfort zone that's outside of other people's. And so I, don't, I love Detroit. I absolutely... It's almost like a bluff. You're like, you know, I'm not afraid of this. this right. You know. But it's a it's a it's a great city. I mean, there's so many places. No, you know what? It's kind of amazing that you've ended up here. It's funny. I mean, I never would have seen myself like this, and I never kid from the street ends up on a ranch. And I never, and I never, as a young person, I loathed work. I hated work. Well, that's what street you know street performers they hate they hate work. Exactly. How that's, many how many years did you do it? How many did you do? How many years did you hate work? I hated work for. So I guess, really, I got off this. Well, let me see. I went on the circus in 88. So that's performing still. And I left the circus for two years and did drafting for General Motors, which is good because that financed my my own bout with cancer. So that's good. You did drafting for General Motors? Yeah. You can't live in Detroit and not end up working for For one of those companies. Uh. But it's good. Like I said, it financed my cancer. But, uh, <laughs> but after that, I started performing. Cancer so is expensive, oh. especially in America. 
Yeah, not if you work for GM. Yeah, right. <laughs> or until Obamacare came along. Now it's worse. Um, so until then, you had I the mean, cancer like young. Years, twenty-five years. I've been performing. Maybe twenty-five years, right? Okay. Just, so, so half your life you've been a performer. Yeah, and if you count it back to, I mean, I never had a job in high school or anything. I did the Renaissance festivals and little street performing things and little, you know, birthday gigs around. I mean, it's all I've ever done since I was thirteen. How how did you get into the uh, sword swallowing? When, when I was it? on the circus, uh, there was a guy Mike Schneider who's from Arkansas. Um, Arkansas. Well, that's how you might say it, but he loved Arkansas. He loved it so much that he sang this song all the time. Arkansas, Arkansas. I just love old Arkansas. Love my ma, love my pa. I just love old Arkansas. <laughs> Which is from some, I guess it's from Big River or some Broadway play. He was gay, as most clowns are. So he would love those shows. Which I didn't know until I got on the circus. I got on the circus, and we all show up, and the year that I was hired, they hired, you know, Reeling takes in... Back to Clown College, really takes thousands and thousands of applications every year. And they accept maybe between 50 and 75 people every year. It depends on what their needs are and stuff like that. And actually being accepted by, by Ringling, when you go through Clown College, there's this whole thing of, well, did you make it on the big show or not? But it depends on what they want. Like the year I went through, they were after trampoline acts because they were bringing in some big uh, show from South Africa, a big uh, trapeze show, and they wanted a trampoline show to go under it. So mainly they were after clowns who had the skills to do that thing. And if that's not your thing, if your skill So was, you did trap trap it. No, I, my skill was drinking beer. So <laughs> I didn't get anything like <laughs> So that's why I ended up with the BD show. But so under the BD show, they hired like five of us out of Clown College. And we were all good friends. Me, Pete Infuso, James Hauser, uh, Ron Grzetsky, and Tom Coggin. And we were all just these weren't weren't gay clowns we didn't know we got on the circus and that's when we learned that a huge percentage of circus clowns are gay which sure. is absolutely fine yeah. um, but it's a shock for an 18 year old boy you come in this world and you're in the, the, the line waiting for your food and the working men are absolutely they're just like these hardcore I mean they're as redneck as I am now just these guys. They're just they're looking like, for some fresh you're, meat. You're fucking faggots. You all, you clowns. Just And we're like, what? We're not. No, no. <laughs> so, of course, we set out to bang all the road chicks we could to prove them wrong. Right. But we didn't, we didn't know. It's just a weird... It was shocking. <laughs> to know that... We didn't know. So, what, where, but where did the... So, where did the... I asked you where the sword swallowing came from. <laughs> Right. So, <laughs> so the clown who taught me. You're saying, gay. I'm not gay, I'm not gay, but I am a sword swallower. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so yeah, the guy who taught me, Mike Schneider, he was, this, he was a, a gay clown. Wonderful guy. I love Mike. Just a fucking hoot. He was so funny. Just the best memories of good times with all those guys. It was just hilarious, especially living in a sleeper. And like, we were all young, these young guys. We wanted to put up. Playboy posters, like, well, we get to put playboy posters, we get to put what we want. Okay, so we won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he um, used, he did swords line when they had, like, the last of their sideshows. They didn't have a full-on sideshow. But at the end, as people were leaving, they would have people who do skills, do, like, a... So they didn't carry the, a separate sideshow. 
they just had people do a sideshow as people were leaving. So whenever it was done, the clowns could do that or, or blockhead or, you know, whatever. Kind of like a bonus act. Yeah. We do their things. And so we were just sitting around drinking one night, and, and I was like, well, how do you learn to swallow swords? And he said, look at your eye. And he, did, he said that. He said, well, I'll show you. But he didn't mean what you think he <laughs> he, uh, he was like, well, you learn with a, a coat hanger. And, you, da, 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 da. and so I listened to him, and I remembered it. And so I got done being on the circus, and I went back to, to Michigan. And uh, I was planning on going back on the circus the next year. And then the cancer thing happened, and I was like, well, I don't... You know, because we haven't really covered that, but I I got diagnosed with t- testicular cancer. Um, how old are you, How old was that? It was eighty nine, so I was twenty one. So I had a no. It was I was twenty because I March is when I turned twenty one. On Valentine's Day of all days, Valentine's Day of nineteen eighty nine, I had a testicle cut out. You had a testicle cut out. Yep, gone on Valentine's Day of all things. You were twenty. Yeah. So your mother passed when you were sixteen. Yeah. Your dad passed when you were 18. When I was 20. And then you were 20, you had cancer. And you all had cancer. That'll make you need attention, won't it? What? Yeah, that's full on. That'll make you stand at a street corner and go, me! Like I said before. That's well, I mean, it's it. like, I could die. I could die tomorrow. Yeah. Life could be over. Yeah. Fucking just... L- so there was there a little bit of like, fucking just live it hard and fast? Not intentionally. I mean, looking back, I mean, f- fucking for sure. But looking back, no. I, 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 I actually, I was working, f- I guess what happened is I got off the circus, and I kind of didn't want to go back. So I, I, and there was a girl that I'd gone with in high school. We were back together. So I guess, now I'm thinking about it. I haven't thought about all this in a long time. But I was like, I'm going to stay in Detroit and do this thing. So I got a job doing drafting for a small company that made, uh, uh, compressed air dryers, um, and I was doing that, and then I had a good friend, my my foster brother from my foster family in Detroit, worked for a company called Pioneer Engineering. He said, "Jeff, I have an interview. Come interview." So I went and interviewed, and in between the interview and the hire date is when I got diagnosed with cancer, and so I called and Joe. Well, I should remember his name because I ended up working with him, but his name was Joe something. I called him and said, I'm sorry. I uh, I was just diagnosed with cancer after these things, so I can't start until da 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 And he went, well, I don't know that we really know we can hire you then, you know, which would never happen in Canada. But in America... Discriminating against someone for... Well, then good on him. Why should they pick up that tab, you know? Right. <laughs> Every man to himself is the way it should be. Support yourself or don't, or, you know, pass by the wayside. So luckily I didn't pass by the wayside. But so anyway, so I went through the first round of stuff and I had inheritance from my parents, not a lot, but that's where that money went to, was for that first go round. And my. They just cut it out. Yeah. Just cut out your knife. First day. First day. And they were like, we think we got it all. But the funny thing about that is they were like, well, how did you discover this? And my story was, uh, my girlfriend found it. And, of course, it was actually me that found it. Cause well, you, like, look, I have testicles as well. and uh, We have the same testicle. <laughs> yeah, we have. Yeah. Well, not the same testicle, but we, we, <laughs> we do. Should, we share a testicle. We share a, a fatal flaw. 
<laughs> a fatal flaw. A physical flaw. But, but like, you know, a man is Let's down say there. Let's it is. Varicocele. Some yeah, people aren't thinking we're like here. 10% of men have a thing called varicocele where like, basically it's like a varicose vein. It's overabundance of veins in the scrotum. In the scrotum. But, you know, old ladies have it on their legs. We have it in their balls. We have old lady balls. Um... So, but like you're. It's good because I only have one ball, so it almost fills it out. We got. Three. Unfortunately, they're on the same side, so I'm really a total fucking cyclops. <laughs> oh, so the varicose seal basically save the one nut. Okay, if you want to spin it as a good thing. <laughs> sure. So you found a lump. Anyway, so yeah, I found it, and that's how I ended up the 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 uh, the. Uh, uh, Urologist, and that led to everything else. But they were—it was the smallest. Urologist said, "It's the smallest tumor I have ever had a patient find. It was just like teeny, teeny, teeny." But when they pulled it out, because what they do is they do like a bikini cut, like they do on women to 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 uh, do stuff. They do a bikini cut up above, and they reach down into you and pull the testicle out. They don't cut your scrotum. Oh. They pull it back up through your belly. So they pulled it out, and they're like, "It was." The color of it was a little dicey and stuff like that. So right away they like nut off <laughs> and took it for a biopsy. It was cancerous. And uh, but then they were like, "Well, I, it's so small. We think everything's fine. It's probably all good." So then you know I went in for checkups regularly and stuff. And this is well, I'm getting into some interesting stuff here. I thought we were going to talk about juggling, and <laughs> sores. And, yeah, we're, ta- we're, we're talking about juggling. <laughs> Flipping on we, Pedro. We got three balls between, between us. Things. But uh, so I, I, I'm doing all the regular checkups, and, and then it comes back. And actually, the day that it came back, the way, it, the way I knew it came back, and it came back to the test, is I was doing the drafting for General Motors. I went out to start my car. I'm not making this up, because I've got a true story. went out to start my car. I had a Volkswagen, and I lived in, in a pretty crappy part of Detroit. A green Volkswagen bug. I've always loved Volkswagens, but I went to start it, and somebody tried to steal it that night. Of all the fucking things to steal, so finally I get to work. I get to work. Oh, and I also cut myself shaving that day. Cut myself shaving that day, and it's the last time I ever cut myself shaving. I'm meticulous. That had the car shaving. I get to work, and I'm at work, and it's around noon, and I'm like. Well, that testicle I don't have really fucking hurts. It hurts really fucking bad. So I had ghost pain. Yeah. So I went to the doctor, and sure enough, they found out the cancer was just all up and down my lymph nodes along my spine. Just ridiculous. So I went in. They started chemotherapy instantly, like huge, massive chemotherapy. I was in for a week, out for four days, and on the last day, they give me another different kind of treatment. A week, and it went on for three months. I mean, massive. Massive, it, huge, like, like it was a big deal. It was like the time was, we don't know, but we're gonna. Tr- it's a really aggressive treatment, and uh, and there were some dicey times between it. I mean, there was a time when when I had a really bad reaction, and had to stay in longer, and I was, I, like like they had to give you the ice bath because your fever is so wrong and stuff. You know, like you see on on on. on so hospital, you, hospital shows. you could have you could have died. You you might not well, even be here. We're not done yet. So then I uh, I go to then I get done with all that and they're like everything's okay, it's all good. And then they go, well, it, it's come back. 
And that's when I went and got the big surgery, which is the huge scar that goes from my sternum oh, wow. all the way down to, to, to my pelvis. I went for this huge operation. And they were gonna, what they do is they, they cut you stem to stern, pull all your guts out, set them next to you, and they were going to cut away all the, the stuff around my lymph nodes, which they did. And that's the thing that was supposed to leave me sterile. Um, and we got done with that. They're like, all right, everything's good. So now you just need to come in for checkups. So I was going for checkups. And this is really, this is what really made me start performing, really. I mean, I performed as a kid. I did the circus and stuff, but I was kind of done with it. I was going to, you know, see what else life I'd offer. So this was back in, in, in 89, 90. And, uh, the, and I was going in for testing. And Tess came back and said, your cancer's back. And I thought, and I thought, well, I watched my mom fight cancer. I heard about my aunt fight cancer once, twice she lost. I watched my mom fight cancer once. It was okay for a while. Twice, she didn't make it. I watched my father fight it. Same story. Once, kind of okay, gone. And I thought about all how shitty my life had been up until then. Bounce on through foster homes and just all this stuff, you know? I was like, no, no, life, is, and some people would say, well, don't you know life is worth more than that? But life is worth more than that fight. Because we're all going to die. When you come out, the minute you're shot out of that womb, the minute you jump out of the womb, you're going to die. That's what's going to happen. It's part of the deal. And it's a great part of the deal. It's, who knows? It's the, it's the you do things because you don't know what's going to happen next. It's part of the deal. It's scary because you're going to lose all the people you love. Like, I, I think now, as an adult, I don't want Jessica ever to be alone. I don't want my kids to be alone. And that's what's scary now. But at 18, you're like... Whatever. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So I called everybody in my family, and I said, here's the decision I made. I'm not going to go back to chemotherapy. I'm just going to be done. I'm not going to do any of it. I'm not doing it. I called my brother, my other brother, my sister, my other sister, aunts and uncles, and I said, I'm, I'm done called my foster family that I was much closer to, Barb Smith and Sam Smith and Becky Smith, all these people. I said, I'm done. But for some reason, I kept going to the checkups. And two weeks later, they realized it was a false positive. A false positive? Yeah. So they cut you open for no reason? No, they cut me open for a reason. But the test that showed the cancer was back right. was a false positive. So until my recent sword swelling accident happened, which we'll end up discussing, I had not been to a doctor in all that time in 30 years because I have no use for it. I don't, it's going to come. It's gonna so happen. you have a bit of a, you know, like life will unfold as it should kind of attitude. Yeah. And that's what, I guess that's when I really started performing because I was like, well, you, if you're going to be on this planet, you should do what you want to do. And I did it and I loved it. And now I don't want to do performing anymore. <laughs> I want to be here on this ranch. And, and as, I, as I got to the end of performing, last year I went to the, the owner of the... And we're not talking about street performing here. We're just talking about my performance. No, but that's what... You know, like, we're more about, than that. Yeah. But so, I mean, Renaissance... I've done street performing all over. But Renaissance festivals are really what paid my bills through the chunk of the year. Because it's a finite... It's a contract amount. It's multi-year contracts. And it's big money. So, and it's full of people in ridiculous outfits and... 
Well, you know, I dress Selling like Han Solo myself. I don't wear tights or anything anymore. You dress like Han Solo? I wear black pants, a white shirt, and a black vest. Han Solo. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Play the game. I'm so not Renaissance. I just do what I'm going to do. So what are you? But so, so I'm Han Solo, motherfucker. Well, I say that in my show. I make a joke about it. Like I, I, it's, it's my casual act. Because I, I did the same show that I would do on, like when I did shows in Tasmania or... Or wherever, or, or England, or Reykjavik, you know, wherever, I do the same goddamn show. And, and one of the things I'd always say is to Renaissance Festival audiences, I'd say, I'm sorry, does my casual attitude shatter your 16th century illusion? <laughs> I'm dressed like Han Solo for crown. <laughs> but so I, I got done with it. I mean, we, Jessica and I moved here to Patagonia seven years ago, and I found a place I really loved, and I traveled my whole life. I've always been searching for something. I was done searching for love in my life and attention because I had Jessica. I found this town that I loved, and then I ended up with this job here at this ranch two years ago that I loved. And I went into the entertainment director at the, the, Arizona, the Carolina Renaissance Festival. I said, Matt, I know we have two years left on the multi-year contract that you've always made the option on your side alone. But I'm kind of done. And it'd be really nice if you just, this wonderful thing that can only be on your side of the contract, if you just use that wonderful thing, it'd be fantastic. And so the owner of the festival, his uncle, Jeff Siegel, called me right away and he's like, well, we have this agreement. You're backing out. I said, Jeff, I'm not backing out of my contract. If you want me to be here, I'll be here until the end of it. I'm just saying, you've always put this option. Why don't you be done with it? He's like, well, okay, what if you you just come back one more year? So we have a year to find somebody else, and we also have next year to promote you as his last year, you know, Carney. Yeah, you can get that. He's like, okay, you know what? We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna package this as the uh, last ever show. Uh, Exactly. So that was what we agreed on, and then I get here to Arizona this year. And the third weekend in, I have my first ever accent of my whole sorts of line career. Like a devastating accent. And yeah, what I, happened? I, there's a thing I started doing. And it's, it's uh, First time I ever did it in front of an audience was in Ottawa. And Bike Boy was there. It was just nasty and so as well. I'll do that. And, uh, but so I had a sword in my throat that I set on fire. And I do the thing where a sword swallow lets a sword fall the rest of the way by itself. And then I juggle three torches. So it's a fire thing. I totally fucking sell out, which I was not a, about. So that's probably why it happened. I mean, I compromised everything I believe in to be doing this sell out. Oh, fire for the sake of fire, you know? Yeah. Not, oh, apparently my show's not good enough to just like me. I have to do something spectacular. Yeah. You know, which is, I'm going to do this show on fire. Right. If only I'd gotten a poll. But anyway, so... <laughs> So I, I'm, I'm doing this here at the Arizona Festival, and, and I've been doing it for a couple of years, and, and it was, it, you know, the way a show should go from bang to bang to bang to bang, you know, bigger and better. It, it fit, and it was working. But I think because I was working here at the ranch, which I so enjoy, and I'm so done performing anyway, and I already made that decision, somehow I wasn't focused during the show. Right. And so I have this You're sword. putting a sword in your mouth. I have this mouth. sword partway down my throat. I'm not paying attention. I mean, I'm on this new stage they built me. It's beautiful. It's like a, a, like a, it's like a theater. I mean, big rafters and walls and everything. And I'm looking up at the rafters. It didn't happen when this, when the accident happened, but the week before, 
or the show before, I guess. I've been there and I'm looking at the rafters going, these are built pretty shoddy. <laughs> there I am with a sword in my throat going to this thing. I'm doing a show, but I'm so not focused. So in this, this, this next particular show, I'm doing the show, and the trick before it, something went wrong, so you're even more thrown off. You know, you're not on your game. And so I have the sword halfway down my throat, and get ready to juggle, and I move the torches in a way that I slam one of the torches into the high end of the sword, which is like, like so my throat and as, as the fulcrum, and the bottom end of the sword just slammed over into my heart. Into your heart. Yeah. And it didn't cut or anything. You know, the swords aren't sharp. If you, you can't swallow a sharp sword more than once. But did you did you, did you cut yourself internally, like your esophagus? No. no. It was just a... It was just a... You bruised yourself. Yeah. It was like a big impact. You bruised during... It was like organs. a big impact. So people in the audience saw it right away. And I, I got done with the show. And I didn't even go... Usually at a Renaissance Festival, because you're on a stage, you go to the back, you walk to the back of the audience, and you pass your hand. I didn't even do that. I just said, I'm just going to stay up here and pass my hat. And people came up. And I remember this one lady, really particularly, an older lady, with kind of was old enough that her hair was a little bit, she was blonde, but it was a little bit like straw, a little bit dried out, just in, in, a, in that Arizona sunburnt, long time, wrinkled face, looking at me and going, you hurt yourself, didn't you? I went, eh, I'll be okay. So I got up in the show, and, and then I, I go back to my trailer, and the minute I lay down on my trailer, because I knew I had to go lay down, I'm like, something's not right. I could feel my heart just beating out of my chest. So I'm like, this isn't good. So I went and I found, I went to go find the entertainment director. I went over to this, this place that's nearby where they do a bird show where somebody always has a radio can get a hold of her. And they didn't have a radio, they couldn't get over. But as I came back, she happened to come to meet the owner of the festival, Cross Pass. And I said, Jessica... Jessica Willard's your name. She's an entertainment director. I said, Jessica, this is what happened at that show, and I don't know if I can do the next show. And she said, well, do you think? Do you not think? I'm like, well, I, I probably can, but I don't know. And I look at my watch, and I'm like, well, it's, I don't want to tell you at the last minute, so let's just say I can't do it. She's like, all right, I'll get somebody to come for you. So then I went back to my trailer again, and my heart was even more crazy. I'm like, this isn't right. So I left and walked up to the, the, where the, the medics are, where the ambulance is, the ambulance. <laughs> I, say, I say ambulance. Ambulance. You might say ambulance. I also think that people live in mountains. They're hibbelies, not <laughs> hibbelies. But anyway, so I go walking back up there, uh, up to the place, and by the time I got to them, and I remember that walking up there, I saw all the other people that I know. It's like a dream state. I get up there, and I go into the EMT, the emergency medical technician, I say... This is what happened, and I think something's wrong with my heartbeat. I think I did something in my heart, because I know when you swallow a sword, it goes right past your heart. Hmm. There's actually, as, as the line of your esophagus goes, it comes down straight, straight, straight. It makes a teeny little jog around your heart, and it goes straight. So when you swallow a sword, you actually push your heart aside at that little bit to swallow a sword. It's just part of the anatomy that makes it work. So I, I said that kind of stuff to him. Oh, that's why. Okay. Right. And so uh, and he's like, well, I'm missing your heart. And as soon as he put the stethoscope on my heart, he's like, you're going to the hospital. And he sat me down, put an EKG on me, uh, like a cardiograph machine. And he, my heart rate was at 160, sitting down, which is astounding. And my blood pressure was in the stroke zone. And so they carted me off to the hospital and uh, I got there and it took him six hours and three different intravenous drugs 
first time I've been in the hospital since the cancer thing. So that was probably part of my blood pressure. <laughs> but it took them six hours to get my blood pressure to level out. And they wanted me to stay all night. And I was like, well, my wife, who I had called for the ambulance and said, I'm on my way to the hospital. It's no big deal. This little thing happened. It's just fine. Which, of course, is... You know, I meant it when I said it, but obviously it's... You know, absolutely it's bullshit. one of those things you say to not... It's, you don't want people to in your life to uh, freak out. Right. So anyway, I get to the hospital and they go through all that. And, and, and at the end of it, the doctor's like, well, I want you to stay overnight. I'm like, my wife is 230 miles away. And she can't leave because we run a ranch and can't leave alone. You're going to tell me to go to a doctor tomorrow. At the end of this, you're going to tell me to go to a doctor tomorrow to see a cardiologist. Just let me go now, and I promise you I will do all of that tomorrow as soon as I get home. And it took a bit of convincing. He's a great doctor. He's a neat guy. He's an old guy. But he finally was like, if you really mean it, if you're really serious, I'll, I'll let you go. Because you can't walk out of a hospital. If you walk out of a hospital, your insurance doesn't pay for anything and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, you're kind of captive. <laughs> right. And so he agreed, and so they signed my release forms, and I had to go out. And then we had to come home and, and take care of things. But and now, 25 years, I'd never had an accident. And in a way, that's what made you decide to give it up. Well, it made it kind of final. You know, I'd been moving in that direction anyway. But you're on a ranch now. You've got skills. So you, you could be like... Doing some uh, lassoing. Walking with a lasso guy. Yeah, because performing is exactly what I want to do. <laughs> no, I'd rather just be out here doing nothing. It's. I don't blame you. It's fucking beautiful out here. You land on your feet. You've always landed on your feet. You've got. So you've got a guardian angel. So far, so good. We'll see. I mean, you might miss it. I mean, look. Well, you well got that's the thing. Is I'm not totally done. Um, the, the Arizona festival wants me to stay on. I'm not going to go do. You were I mean, told you me, you were told you wouldn't have kids, and you have two kids. I know, right? I know. And I lost one wife, and I got a second wife. We haven't. My kids, though. My kids, like my my daughter that I wasn't supposed to have, she went to Cornell on a full ride scholarship for physics. Smart the boy, one. kid. He's in college, and the ex wife. She's, she graduated law school and passed the bar exam. And now I'm just, you know, here on a ranch married to Jessica. <laughs> Who's the greatest person on this whole planet? But. The love of your life. <laughs> it's a funny world, man. No, you know what? We haven't heard the last of you, Jeff Cobb. No, I bet you have. Maybe. No, you know what? Maybe you are riding off know, into the sunset. You know what I have? Is I'll still do my little Arizona Renaissance Festival because it's four hours away. You know why you won't? Is because this whole Facebook thing has caused me nothing but trouble. Because everybody has figured out, like, can we name names here without it being... Yeah, constantly? fucking name names. All right. Because Aton, I guess, was having a conversation with Dick Finkel. And Dick Finkel said, have you seen all that right-wing shit Jeff Cobb posts? <laughs> At first I was funny, but then I realized it was true. And now I've realized, you know, in many instances, there are people who want nothing to do with you if you don't think like the oh. herd mentality street performers. And I'm sorry, I've just never been, I just don't, I mean, every man for themselves. I've never bought into this whole liberal, and now we're going on a tangent, but I've just never bought into that. I've never been part of that. I would sit around the beer drinking things always. I remember big discussions with Andrew Elliott and stuff. 
where I was just absolutely defensive of America. Because America is the last place to me on earth that is supposed to be. Maybe it's not anymore. Maybe that's where the difference lies. Is I still believe what it's supposed to be. Is it was supposed to be a chance where a place where anybody who wanted to do something could do it. And if you don't want to do something, you don't have to do something. I never want to do something. I just always want to be kind of comfortable and in the middle. But if you really want to be something, and if we talked about the people who really want to do something, maybe we'd be someplace else. A but lot of so the performing world. I don't know. We don't think that way, and it ostracizes you in some way. And I think that's. I think a lot of our rights and freedoms have been taken for granted now, and we, they don't recognize where they came from, you know. And that's why I love the street, you know, to bring it back to the street, is that it's the last bastion of freedom in a sense. You can just go on the street and do a show and ask people for money, and they can give you the money or they don't give or you the not. money. Right, and that's it's it. It's not uh, like other parts of entertainment where it's controlled by the the producing part or the advertising part or anything like that. It's a chance where you can just go do what you can do. If you can do it, you can do it. If you can't, you can't. If you can get one guy or one guy and one girl or two guys or whatever to do everything, that juggle, that do sear wheel, that do everything, what else do you need? And it just makes it such a... Uh, it just lowers the common name of the whole thing. Whereas if you have people, and I don't mean to toot my horn in some big way, but if you have somebody who does a quiet little show that's storytelling, that's punctuated by sword swelling, which sword swelling should be, I guess some people think that should be some big amazing thing. I never put it on as a big thing. It was just the reason to get people to watch. Um, Will Chamberlain, who put on the, the Belfast Festival, uh, Festival of Fools, who I think is is a contact that I lost because of my Facebook political leanings. Um, and I love Will, and I love doing that festival. I did two years in a row, and, and for years after, he would take my recommendations for people to be there, which is a, a great thing. But I, I think my political leanings really blacklisted me. I mean, it's like the opposite of the Red Scare you know, back in the day. But uh, Well, there's nothing intol more intolerant than a liberal. Well, you know, you said that, and I agree with you, but I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, you know, he he wrote a thing that you, when he had me back two years in a row, he wrote a thing about my show saying the reason we're having him back is because he's in the middle of a really great story when he got on the plane and we had to hear the end of it. So it's just that difference of making the show about you or about the tricks. And I think that the young kids coming up, I think it's different. It's all about the tricks. And I think if you watch any of the really great shows, um, anything, even, well, Gazzo, you know... <laughs> There's something about Gazzo. I love Gazzo. Even now he's peddling his, selling his tricks left and right and his bags and his ball bags, which I wouldn't do because mine's half empty. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, there's something about Gazzo that makes you watch that show. There's something about him. He's just, in some way, he's this naughty boy that you want to watch. And there's so many people who are like that. But now there's so many shows that are just bigger, better, faster, more, and that's what you're watching. You're not watching the person. And it's succeeding. So obviously we're the ones who need to fade away into the dark, I guess. But it's unfortunate that producers at the top, and it's like that in the music industry and, and, and all entertainment industries, they're the ones making the choices. And it's sad that they're making the choice to go with bigger, better, faster, more over personal. Uh, well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for doing this with me. That was a good fun. We'll see, we'll see you on the ranch. So there you have it. 
I really want to thank Eric for driving all the way down from Calgary, Canada to Southern Arizona to have a chat with Jeff. I'm sure that's all I did. I did not hang out, have a good time, or drink together. But uh, I do appreciate him taking the time to have that conversation for Jeff for sharing his stories. Now, you know, if you're a sponsor of this podcast, it really does help us uh, keep generating more content. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the podcast, you can contact me at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. You can also visit the Busker Hall of Fame website and throw a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of the project at patreon.com forward slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping keep busking history alive. All the music for the podcast came from very good friends of mine, a band called 357 Lover. They're amazing. Look them up. Uh, links to both songs are available on the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you enjoy this podcast, which I'm guessing if you're still listening now, you probably did, please tell a friend and leave us a review. We really appreciate it. Just this past month, I met three performers who told me they listened to the podcast. I was honestly stunned. We get very little feedback to know who's listening, so a comment here or there on social media, or a thanks, a personal thanks to any one of us, uh, and how we've contributed really makes all the time we put into uh, creating the podcast and the project worthwhile. So on behalf of myself, Eric Amber, who recorded the interview, and the rest of the team of the Busker Hall of Fame, remember, if you can't laugh at yourself... Find someone else and laugh at them. I'm Magic Brian, and thanks for listening. <laughs>